Let's bow our hearts and minds once again in prayer to our Lord. Lord, we thank you for uh, the ordinary means of grace that we are participating in and celebrating this morning, uh, singing and praying and the preaching of your word and the Lord's table. Lord, uh, these are ways in which you continue to draw uh, people's hearts to repentance, that you continue to crack through ice and calcification that dwells in human hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that you would simply uh, do your work amongst us this morning, that you would drive out of us uh, pretentiousness and drive out of us um, cruelty and hypocrisy and contentiousness for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray your help now as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important figures in the history of the church is a North African chap named Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, better known simply as Tertullian. Tertullian's most important written contributions were penned in the late 2nd century and in the early part of the 3rd century, and this was a time when significant persecution against the Christian church had been taking place at the hands of the Romans, um, and especially in Africa and in Syria. Many Christians were being harassed, being tortured, and even killed for their convictions. Many were thrown to lions or burned in public. Well, one of Tertullian's most famous lines was written during that difficult uh, context, during that period. Writing to a Roman audience, Tertullian said concerning the church, he said, the more we Christians are mown down by you, Romans, the more numerous we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Now, I think it's probably the case that many of us have heard this quote as it is normally misquoted, which is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But here on the screen, we have the actual quote. Again, the more we are mown down by you, the more numerous we grow, the blood of Christians is seed. Tertullian was putting his finger on what we might call a blessed paradox. That remarkably, the effect of trying to stamp out Christians and stamp out Christianity, which itself would be a horrible thing to live through, this persecution was having, in fact, the opposite effect of what the Romans desired. In fact, in God's providence... That horrific persecution was causing the church to grow, to increase. Well, in our passage of Philippians this morning, Paul, who was writing about 135 years before Tertullian, Paul reports the same sort of paradoxical phenomenon, namely that his imprisonment in Rome far from putting a wet blanket on the progress of the gospel, was in fact turning out for the advance of the gospel. 
Now, how many of us know this morning that our God is a God who likes to produce beautiful gospel results out of the hard circumstances of our lives? How many of us know that? Well, Paul has just finished praying over the Philippian church in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. We looked at that passage last week. And now beginning at verse 12, he proceeds to give them a report of his circumstances in prison and how things had been going. Now, if it were me in that prison writing a letter to my friends, I would most likely mention the hard circumstances and conditions that I was facing, and probably in some detail. I would write probably, well, the bed is too hard and I don't sleep very well, and there aren't enough blankets, and I'm not getting enough to eat, and in one corner of my cell it's actually pretty cold, and I can't figure out why I'm here when on the outside there is so much work to be done. Those kinds of things. Well, what I want us to pay close attention to here is Paul's perspective. As he writes from prison, his view of his circumstances, it is truly a remarkable perspective that Paul has, and it's full of unexpected surprises And if you're like me, it will really challenge you a great deal. Now, if you're a person who's come into church this morning walking through a difficult time or a hard situation, I really encourage you to pay attention here to what God is saying. And my prayer is that he's going to steer our perspective and bring correction, perhaps, where correction is needed. So beginning at verse 12, Paul says to his Philippian readers, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is writing to the Philippians, and the Philippians had heard that Paul had been thrown in prison. They had been concerned about his welfare. Uh, They'd probably also been wondering... Well, what does Paul's imprisonment mean for ministry work? How is the gospel going to get out in that part of the world if Paul is there confined to a cell? Well, here Paul addresses their concerns. But what we notice, friends, and this is very important, what we notice is that Paul spends precious little time, in fact, virtually no time whatsoever, talking about how hard prison was for him personally. Instead, what is Paul's passion here in this passage? What's his focus? Well, his focus, listen, is squarely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. His focus is on what was happening gospel-wise as he was in prison. That is all that Paul seems to care about here. He says that his circumstances in prison, the fact that he'd been arrested, that he had been thrown in jail, had served to do what? To advance the gospel. Now, wouldn't it be easy, if you were there, it would be easy for us to look at Paul being arrested and being thrown into prison and say, that's a hindrance to the gospel's advance. 
That's a frustration to the gospel's advance and God's purposes. After all, Paul had been very active as a missionary, freely traveling hither and yon, spreading the gospel from place to place as he went. And now, seemingly, he'd been shut down. He'd been thrown into a cell. And he was awaiting word from the emperor about whether he would live or die. So the optics were pretty terrible, in fact. This looked as if a serious pause had been placed on Paul's gospel initiatives. But notice what Paul says. He says, no, in fact, this imprisonment is working to advance the gospel. Now, Rome may have put him in prison in this cell in the hopes of stopping the advance of the gospel, But the irony was that even as he was there in that cell, the gospel was advancing. Again, hear what God is telling us here. He can take dire circumstances and do amazing work. Amen? Well, how was this happening precisely? What were the specifics of this gospel advance? Let's go to verse 13. Paul says, that it's become known throughout the the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now this is astonishing on the part of God here. Watch what God worked here. Let's think through this a little bit together. There's Paul in this Roman prison. Just picture him in your mind's eye. He's there in this Roman prison, chained by the wrist day and night, to a Roman guard. These Roman guards would rotate every four hours, guard after guard after guard. A new guard would come every four hours to relieve the guy who had been chained to Paul for the last four hours. And now the new guy would come, and he would take his four-hour shift. And as one very wise person has pointed out, And I want you to listen to this. It wasn't so much that Paul was chained to these Roman guards as it was that these Roman guards were chained to Paul. Because Paul the captive had each one of them as a captive audience for four hours, chained to the wrist, plenty of time to share the gospel, four hours, plenty of time for these guards to hear Paul praying to observe Paul's Christ-like demeanor, to observe him writing, uh, to hear the words of Scripture, to be affected by the authority of Jesus Christ that Paul carried with him wherever he went. And word about this prisoner would surely be spreading through the whole imperial guard, which numbered 9,000 men, through the entire barracks, even to those guys who had not been assigned to Paul. Word was that there was this prisoner who strangely and who very boldly didn't seem to talk very much about the authority of Caesar over him. He was much more interested in talking about the authority and the lordship of this person named Jesus. 
Paul says specifically here that what had been spreading amongst the guards and spreading amongst all the rest was that Paul's imprisonment was for Christ. That is, the thing that became evident to the guards was that this prisoner named Paul was was here in this prison because of his life in Christ. Because of his convictions about Christ. Because of his relationship with Christ. You see, it wasn't robbery or fraud or murder or anything like that that had put Paul in prison. It was the fact that he was in Christ, unable to stop spreading the gospel. That's why he was in prison. As John Kitchen has it, he says, Paul has ended up in a Roman prison because his heart and life had already been taken captive by Jesus Christ. There was a a previous captivity to his prison captivity, and that was the captivity of his heart to Christ. Yes. And even this stay in prison, friends, even this stay in prison was part of what Paul will later call in this same uh, letter to the Philippians, what he's later going to call sharing in Christ's sufferings. It's part of our discipleship. Sharing in Christ's sufferings. Philippians 3.10. His imprisonment was for Christ. Now before we leave verse 13, let's just stand back for a minute and let's take stock of what's going on here. God in his sovereign providence has put Paul in this place that Paul would not have chosen for himself. Is it desirable to go to prison? Prison was not desirable in Paul's reckoning. But now with Paul there in prison... As Dennis Johnson puts it, he says, God was doing what? He was opening doors for the gospel into the halls of power to which Paul could never have gained access as a free agent. The fact is, friends, even in the worst of circumstances, God still rules and God still works And God still gets his missional work done. I hope you know that. As Matthew Harmon puts it, he says, Even trials and sorrow are opportunities for the advance of the gospel. Always bear that in mind. Even your trials and sorrows are opportunities for the advance of the gospel. Let's go to verse 14 to see another surprise. This text is full of surprises. Another unexpected result of Paul's imprisonment. Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by what? How did they become confident in the Lord? By my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now this is very important. As we read this verse together, carefully let me ask you again the question so again a little quiz here you never know what you're going to get when you come on a Sunday morning here's a quiz looking at this verse what is the instrument 
What is the catalyst by which most of the brothers around Rome had been confident and much more bold in their gospel proclamation? It was Paul's imprisonment that was the instrument that had made them confident. He says, by my imprisonment, they've become confident in the Lord. By my imprisonment. The bad circumstance of Paul's imprisonment was bearing gospel fruit. Amen? By his imprisonment, or because of his imprisonment, is one the way one commentator translates this, because of his imprisonment, people were getting courageous in the gospel. The way Paul conducted himself in prison, the way that God was at work through Paul to all of these guards, all of this had been observed by these believers in Rome, and it had sparked confidence and courage in them to go out fearlessly and proclaim the word of God themselves. How counterintuitive is this? You see a guy get arrested and shackled in a cell for his proclamation of Jesus Christ. And for some strange reason, you then want to mimic the very words and actions that got him thrown in jail. (laughs) Now what's going on here? What's happening? Nothing less than this, friends. The Holy Spirit of the living God was causing people who would normally turtle in the face of persecution, the Holy Spirit was causing those people to get bold and to get courageous, to proclaim the very gospel that had provoked persecution against Paul in the first place. And remember, these bold and courageous people lived in the early 60s, of the first century when Emperor Nero was peaking in his madness, in his insanity. The risk of personal harm to these people for preaching the gospel in this context was increasing day by day by day. But again, as Hansen puts it so memorably, he says, listen to this, when the danger of speaking for Christ increased beyond their worst nightmares, their boldness increased beyond measure. One more time. When the danger of speaking for Christ increased beyond their worst nightmares, their boldness increased beyond measure. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper relates the story of the Wycliffe missionary, Chet Bitterman. If we could get the next slide there, Alice, please. So near the beginning of 1981, Chet Bitterman had been held captive for seven weeks in Colombia at the hands of M-19 guerrillas. The guerrillas were demanding that Wycliffe get out of Colombia. Chet's wife and his two young daughters were waiting in Bogota in the hope that Chet would be released. But sadly, it didn't turn out that way. The guerrillas murdered Chet inside a bus. But then what transpired as a result of that awful circumstance was this. 
In the years that followed Chet's murder, applications for overseas service with Wycliffe did not shrink. Rather, they doubled. God used that horrific circumstance of Chet's murder to mobilize missionaries. Just as God mobilized bold preachers of the gospel in the wake of Paul's imprisonment. God does surprising gospel things through very untoward, difficult circumstances. Are you with me this morning? Now, when we get to verse 15, I want you to notice something here. Notice this in the text. Look at it with me. So in verse 14, Paul has just said that most of the brothers around him in Rome have become confident, bold, fearless proclaimers of the gospel. So that is, the majority of the believers around Paul uh, had gained this confidence. Now, when we get to verse 15... Notice that Paul includes the word some, and he also includes the word others. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The some and then the others in this verse are probably all to be included in the majority that Paul has just mentioned in verse 14. In other words, some of the majority of bold and confident gospel proclaimers in verse 14, some of them preach Christ from envy and rivalry. While others of that same majority of verse 14 preach from good will. The basic idea in verse 15 is that within, within the bold and confident majority that was mentioned in verse 14, some have good motives, while others have suspect motives. Paul begins in verse 15 with the people who preach boldly and fearlessly, but who do it with suspect motives. He says, some indeed, listen, Some indeed, what? What are the next words? Preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now notice this very carefully. Paul says that these people with suspect motives preach Christ. They are preaching Christ. That is, the content and the focus of their preaching is as it should always be. I don't care where you are, but the focus of preaching has to be Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ as Savior and Lord. They preach Christ. So these preachers are not the same kind of preachers that Paul goes after in Galatians, for example, who had been preaching a gospel other than the apostolic gospel. Rather, these folks at Philippians 1.15 are doctrinally sound. They are theologically orthodox, small o orthodox. They are preaching Christ. It's just that their motives, their motives in preaching Christ are less than savory. 
Paul says that they preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now, almost certainly, friends, the envy and rivalry that's mentioned here was directed at Paul. Of course, Paul was a prominent leading figure in the early church who was very influential. These brothers who are mentioned at the start of verse 15 were envious of Paul. Has that ever happened in ministry? (laughs) You can bet it does. They were envious of Paul and they felt as though they were in competition with him in ministry. Their desire was to be more eminent and to be more prominent than Paul. They were preaching Christ to be sure. But the motives underneath their preaching were misdirected and very questionable. And then at the end of verse 15, notice Paul mentions others around Rome who, by contrast to that first group, these people were preaching Christ from eudakia in Greek, from goodwill. Now the Greek term that's used here, this term eudakia, has to do with pleasure. Matthew Harmon argues that the idea here is that these other brothers were preaching Christ, as he says, quote, because they are motivated by a deep and satisfying delight in the Christ they preach. Yes, they take pleasure in Christ and they preach out of that pleasure in Christ that they have. In verse 16, Paul says that these guys do it out of love. That is, that second group mentioned in verse 15, preach Christ out of a love for Christ and a love for people, knowing, says Paul, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now look at verse 16. What is interesting in the middle section of this verse is that word put. Put here for the defense of the gospel. The original Greek word has to do with, listen, divine appointment. It has to do with Paul being divinely assigned, divinely appointed to this captivity in prison. Put here. By who? By God himself. And Paul's captivity is linked, notice, to the defense of the gospel. In Paul's imprisonment, the gospel itself was on trial. More than Paul was on trial. The gospel itself would be defended through Paul's imprisonment and his subsequent trial. God was working out purposes here that were larger, listen, than simply Paul's personal situation. Do you know that God is always working out purposes that are larger than your personal situation? Amen? And then in verse 17, Paul comes back. He comes back now to further describe the motives of those who he had mentioned in verse 15. Those who he described in verse 15 as preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. So verse 17, he says that these people, what do they do? Proclaim Christ. Okay, there it is again. We saw in verse 15 that they preached Christ. They were preaching the gospel to be sure. However, as Paul now says in verse 17, they are proclaiming Jesus out of selfish ambition, 
not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Yeah, these guys certainly, they were preaching Jesus Christ, but they were doing so with underlying selfishness, with an undercurrent of self-absorption. Their motives were certainly less than the glory of God. And they supposed, notice this, they supposed, Paul says, or they were thinking to do what? To afflict Paul in his imprisonment. That is to say that even as these guys carried out their ministry, they had one eye on Paul. (laughs) They had one eye on stirring up distress in his life. They wanted Paul to feel pain as he sat there in prison. Now, isn't this a very human tendency? Let's be honest. Sometimes when we see people succeed, we wish them ill will. Yes, it's awful quiet in here. They had one eye on Paul. Peter O'Brien suggests here that it may have been the case that these preachers wanted to bring home to Paul the limitations and restraints of his life in prison in contrast with their unfettered freedom. Ah, Paul, we're out here having success in our ministry while you're over there in prison. Oh, there must have been some deficiency in your ministry if that's where you've ended up. O'Brien says these guys wanted to rub salt in Paul's wounds and try to add frustration to Paul concerning his restricted situation. Again, according to the description in verse 15, these guys perceived themselves as Paul's rivals in ministry. Never a good perspective and approach in ministry, by the way. They perceived themselves as his rivals in ministry, his competitors rather than his partners. Now, friends, having been on the inside of church ministry for nearly two decades now, this verse has particular resonance with me. This verse poses, I think, some very serious questions to every single person who is involved in vocational ministry. The big question is, are you ready for it? What is my motive in doing ministry? What is your motive? The motive of some is to find their personal identity in ministry more than it is a genuine passion for the glory of God. The motive of others can be to wield power over other people instead of serving other people. The motive of still other people is to construct a personal empire instead of loving a broken congregation where they are. What is My motive. What is your motive in doing ministry? God's word tells us in these verses that a person can be preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ while harboring envy, 
rivalry, selfish ambition, and cruelty toward other brothers and sisters. May we pay very close attention here, and may God perform, we trust that his spirit can do this, may he perform the necessary heart surgery on each and every one of us that would bring honor to his name. Well, friends, along the way this morning, we've noted in this passage the many surprises. It's surprising to us that even though Paul is in this untoward situation of being in a Roman prison, he does not want to dwell at all on the conditions of the prison or how uncomfortable he may have been. Instead, all he seems to care about is how the gospel is progressing. His was a heart that had been clearly set ablaze for the gospel. It also surprises us to see how God worked the advance of the gospel in this very unhappy situation. Roman imperial guards were now getting an earful of the gospel as they were chained to Paul. And because of Paul's imprisonment, boldness and confidence was being created in in the believers around Rome. They were now going out fearlessly preaching the gospel, the very gospel that had landed Paul in prison. This surprises us. This text is full of surprises. And in our final verse this morning, in verse 18, we get our final surprise. Paul has just finished talking about the sketchy motives of certain ministers around Rome whose selfish ambition and rivalry and envy were very apparent. And now he says, (laughs) notice this, I love Paul. He says, what then? I actually like the translation in the NIV a little bit better. The NIV has, what does it matter? What does it matter? In other words, Paul says, Yes, I've described the inner life of these people, the envy, the rivalry, the selfish ambition, the cruelty they've purposed against me. But what does it matter? He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. What should the church be doing? We can get into all sorts of activities, can't we? What should the church be doing? proclaiming Christ. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Wow. He says, whether in pretense or in truth. That word pretense describes the approach of the group in verses 15 and 17. The group who were envious, full of rivalry, selfish and cruel toward Paul, they preached with pretense. As Matthew Harmon has it, these people gave the appearance of a concern for the gospel, an appearance for the concern of the gospel, when in fact the more fundamental motive was selfish ambition. Pretense. And the word truth in verse 18 fits, of course, with the other group who were described uh, at the end of verse 15, the beginning of verse 16, the group who preached Christ out of eudokia, out of pleasure, goodwill, and out of love. They were preaching in truth instead of in pretense. And Paul says here, I hope we notice this, whether the first group or the second group, 
whether virtuous motives behind the gospel preaching or sketchy motives, whether in pretense or in truth. The main thing is that Christ is preached. The main thing is that the gospel is going out. The main thing is that the saving benefits of Jesus Christ are being declared, and that is a cause to rejoice. Now, this is really amazing, is is it not? The envious, rival-based, selfish, cruel group of preachers really wanted Paul to feel distress and annoyance and frustration while he sat there in his prison cell. But contrary to their wishes and expectations, what is Paul doing? He's rejoicing. Paul is not concerned with his personal feelings. Paul is not concerned with complaining about his situation. His sole concern, his only focus is that Jesus is being Preach. If the envious, selfish, cruel preachers were having success in preaching Jesus Christ, if despite their atrocious motives, the news of Christ's atoning death and his resurrection and his perfect obedience, if that message was getting out through them, then Paul would rejoice. If God was advancing the gospel even through the mass of questionable motives in these preachers, then Paul was content and very happy. My friends, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18, is full of surprises. And as we step back and read this whole passage, we may be wondering, how can Paul have such a selfless, Christ-centered perspective in such troublesome and dire circumstances? How is it that Paul can focus so much on the advance of the gospel when he personally was not sure whether he would live or die? Well, to borrow the language of Dennis Johnson, Paul was captured by something bigger than himself. Paul was a person who had been set free, listen, from the petty pursuit of his own comfort. Paul was a person whose life was devoted to a cause bigger than Paul was, the cause of King Jesus. Paul was a person who had been set free from the fear of what others may do to him. Paul was prepared to lay down his very life for King Jesus. Paul was a person who had surrendered his personal reputation to an ideal that was so much higher, the glory and fame of Jesus Christ. Paul was captured by something far bigger than himself. You see, the little captivity here was prison. The bigger, more important captivity was a captivity to Jesus Christ. And as Johnson puts it so beautifully, he says, the taproot of Paul's heart was drawing life-giving sustenance from the wellspring of God's Son, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And so his circumstances took a backseat to the greater focus, which was the advance of the gospel. My friend, examine yourself as we close. Examine yourself for a moment. Don't think of anybody else 
right now but yourself and pose the following question to yourself. The question is this, and I want you to ask, ask this of yourself and answer very soberly. The question is, is my joy controlled by my circumstances? Is my joy controlled by my circumstances? Be honest about it. Is my level of joy dependent on my circumstances? Does it take things going my way to maintain joy? Or, and again, be as honest as you can, is my joy rooted in and centered on Jesus and his gospel and how that gospel is progressing in the world? Is that what gets me up every day? May the Spirit form Christ in us. I close here with the words of Matthew Harmon who says this, Only in the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us will we find the kind of lasting joy that God created us to experience. Everything else will at some stage disappoint. My friend, if you are disappointed, fly to Jesus Christ. Amen. Together we have worshipped. Together we stand ready to serve. May we be rooted in the word of God. May we blossom with faith and good works. May we delight in the Lord. And may our Lord take delight in us. Amen.